0: Hey, folks, and welcome to Typology, the show on which we explore the story of you through the lens of the Enneagram. My name is Anthony Skinner, co-host of the show. So happy to have you here. we got a really interesting conversation with our guest today, Enneagram 5, Erin Lane. She's a writer, theologian, and author of the brand new book, Someone Other Than a Mother, Flipping the Scripts, A Woman's Purpose and Making Meaning Beyond Motherhood. What a fascinating conversation with an Enneagram Five today. Wow, has she done a lot of work, and it translates in this conversation. I personally got a lot of takeaways from my own relationships with Fives. So glad you're here. Glad you get to hear this interview. That's it for me, Anthony Skinner. And now, here is the host of our show, Ian Crowe.
1: Aaron S. Lane Enneagram 5, an author of the new book, Someone Other Than a Mother, flipping the scripts on a woman's purpose and making meaning beyond motherhood. Welcome to Typology.
2: Thank you. I'm so happy to be here.
1: That's a mouthful of a title, Aaron.
2: <laughs> I always want a shorter title and they always tell me I'm not popular enough to have a shorter title that I need more search engine optimized words. So there you go.
0: Well, it is about search engine optimization, but that is not the way to treat an author. That is <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, you're not popular enough.
1: Did yeah. you know that did you know that the name Excuse me, Aaron, we're going to talk about me for a minute. Did sure. you did you know that the name of my memoir, which is Jesus, My Father, the CIA and Me, Ellipsis, a, a memoir of sorts. Right. Right? Yeah. Was the title that I wanted for that book and I fought for mm-hmm. was. Out of True? Out of True. Which mm-hmm. I, that was the title I wanted. They were like, no, we need a longer title. And blah, blah, blah. Uh-huh.
0: So now it's like, you know that Jesus, the oh. father, the me, the CIA oh, book? God. The CIA and God. The one with the gray color. The picture. Right.
2: right, right. Yeah, I wanted someone other than a mother originally to be called, You Don't Know Love.
3: <laughs> hmm.
2: Because that is one of the, the shitty social scripts that people say to women who don't have children You don't know love until you become a mother.
3: Right. Wow. And
2: then folks were like, Mm, no one's going to buy a book telling them they don't know love. And I'm like, well, it's, it's cheeky. And they would then start reading. They were like, no, that's not, that's not how attention spans work these days, Aaron.
1: Well, I I know the pain. (laughs) I know your pain. I am so looking forward to this conversation because I think it's kind of going to be edgy, a little, like little, you know, Mm -hmm iconoclastic there's some really meaty stuff in this book and i can't i really can't wait to to jump into it but first let's talk about enneagram fives tell me how you first became exposed to the enneagram and what did you think when you discovered you were a five
2: yeah, well, I first became acquainted with it when my youth pastor husband came home from some team building exercise at church, claiming he was a seven, which we were in our 20s. So I think everyone thought they were a seven in our early 20s. Mm-hmm. I originally thought I was a seven. And then the more research I did, I was like, oh, I'm I'm not charming enough to be a seven. <laughs> like that is that is, you have to be more fun at parties to be a seven, I think. But I realized that I am a, a social lady five, which is like how I describe it, um, which means I care almost obnoxiously about conserving energy, fostering belonging, and trying to convince other people that unfeeling women aren't the antichrist. And I think <laughs> I came into this knowledge, honestly, after a workshop with one of your co-authors, Suzanne. Suzanne who essentially framed the Enneagram as your core motivation. What do you wake up thinking when you look at yourself in the mirror? And whatever she said about what a five thinks of when they look at themselves in the mirror this morning, it had to do with like, I've got two good hours in me today. How am I going to spend them? Mm. I was like, oh, other people organize their whole lives around the amount of energy they think X, Y, and Z will take them? Yeah, I am. I am definitely a five.
1: Mm. Wow. Well, I mean, I think that oftentimes it's interesting. People tend to think that women fives would not make great mothers. Yes. Because they don't fulfill all of the criteria of the stereotypical mother, and you know, and again, this is a stereotype. People tend to think that all mothers should be Enneagram Twos, Mm
3: -hmm. right? Uh.
1: That's the ideal. Mm -hmm. And of course, there's they're stereotyping Twos, not just Fives, right? Right. And and so, oh, because they're warm, they're supportive, they're self-sacrificing, they're highly attuned to the feelings and needs of others. They want to meet those needs, etc. And so, I think five women are the ones who get pegged as um, the, you know, oppositionally that, that you know, they're going to only be people who are more emotionally detached, uh, have limited amount of energy, can't, you know, always be there for every single, you know, going from noon to midnight or eight o'clock in the morning to midnight, just doing everything for their kids. I mean, on and on and on. But I know lots of great women moms like Lori Chaffer who we've had on the yeah, show was yeah. one of, among many. Aaron, what do you think when people say that Enneagram 5s can't make great mothers?
2: Well, I'm not- so interested in great mothers. I'm interested in engaged parents, right? So I think I think the great Brene Brown said, "I'm not interested in good or bad when it comes to parenting. I'm interested in like, are you present or not? And so I absolutely think that like lady fives can be incredibly present parents. But those other aspects of a stereotypical five that you described, the the sense of detachment, the sense of limited capacity, um, for external relationships. And even I would argue, I have like a high desire for bodily autonomy, a high desire for solitude and silence and a real low tolerance for like interruptions and people needing me. Like I'm really turned off by human need. And I know that's like a growth area for me, but like some of those things actually do feel really true about who I am and how I operate in the world. And sometimes I do think about someone other than a mother, this kind of memoir manifesto I wrote being like an ode to the lady five. Um, Because really, it's a book for any woman, whether single or coupled or step-parent or biological parent or child-free or child-full, as I like to say, that doesn't feel what she's supposed to feel about motherhood, traditionally defined. And namely, you're right, women are socialized into thinking that feeling should be the dominant way in which they engage relationships in the world when it's one of the ways. And further, they're meant to feel like if you don't find motherhood to be a superior source of meaning identity and love to all the others, then yeah, there's something a little bit defective about you. Mm. And then if you have a four wing like me, you kind of like that there might be something a little defective about you and it gets complicated.
1: Yeah. Well, again, you know, that, that four wing, it does bring us actually one of its superpowers is attunement to feelings. It's like, I I can pick up on feelings super fast, Uh, super fast as a four, but you know, that doesn't, it doesn't mean that I'm as responsive to the feelings of others. Let's say like a two is, uh, I just tend to be, but, but you also have as a four, you have a lot more empathy than a five with a six wings. uh, You know, it's like the empathy is really a big, juicy Hallmark feature of fours, you know, Um, but it also means you're one of the quirkier numbers on the Enneagram too.
2: (laughs) Yes. And it means I get easily overwhelmed in the realm of feelings, Mm. right? The thinking capacity comes much more easily to me, feels much cleaner, smoother, manageable to use one of my favorite words. So yeah, it was, it was a real barrier for me to imagine myself as a mother especially growing up steeped in the waters of american christianity where really it was expected that all women would become mothers would want to become mothers and i grew up catholic if not a biological mother then surely a spiritual mother
1: Hmm. you mean a nun
2: I do mean a nun, like a mother superior. (laughs) But even nowadays, if you've gone to any church service in the last five to ten years, there's this move towards wanting to affirm every woman on Mother's Day as a spiritual mother. We are all mothers. And I I get this tendency uh, to move towards inclusion and to move toward away from a biological determinism. And at the same time, I still think there's something about that mother label that just doesn't fit for some of us. Um, It doesn't feel like a club that we want to join or that feels easily something we can see ourselves being a part of without losing a huge chunk of of who we are.
1: Mm. You know, I can, usually on Mother's Day, you often hear, and it's a little condescending, a male pastor say the following, you know, moms have the hardest job in the world, right? Now, is that true? (laughs)
2: Well, this is one of the scripts that I break down in the book. So the way the book is organized is each chapter is a social script that women hear um, that tells them that motherhood is your highest calling, whether that means your biological clock is ticking, or that means home is your highest duty, or that means you'll regret not having kids when you're older. These pervasive social sayings that make women feel like something is wrong with them if they don't believe this, don't subscribe to this, or that this kind of notion doesn't come easily to them. And one of the ones I unpack in the book is this idea that motherhood is the toughest job in the world. I don't, I'm not interested in arguing like what's the toughest thing that people could take on. What I'm interested in is the fact that how did we make motherhood an occupational performative, identity-based measure of worth. And so I think that is what's really condescending when someone not a mother talks about motherhood being the toughest job in the world. I often wonder, huh, I wonder what the strategy behind that is. I'm skeptical. I'm skeptical as you are, it sounds like, when a male pastor stands up and says that because it feels like it's an abdication of duty. It feels like it's a, a... Kind of like, a, oh, shucks, I guess I'm not the essential parent. Um, and and then we've shown, there's all of this research that's shown how unhelpful and unhealthy it is to women's mental health to believe that they are the essential parent or the only parent that can do X, Y, and Z, And also even the idea that parenting is challenging is actually like not great for us to dwell on, which I find a little problematic, but I'm curious. I'm curious about why it feels important for us to play the game of who's doing the toughest work when our worth is not in our work.
3: Mm. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. I think there's a lot of, you can respond, please. Do you think we sentimentalize motherhood?
2: Yeah. Again, Catholic here, you know, so there are, There were the mainstream, the mainstream, I will say there are gorgeously subversive um, art pieces um, that when you go looking for, you find in the Catholic tradition and other traditions. But most of the, the pictures of like the Madonna and the nursing child I saw growing up were very sweet, very soft. Very nurturing. She wasn't doing her own thing while Jesus sort of like toddled with self play next to him or next to her. And so it's like you didn't, there was no bodily autonomy portrayed in these statues and paintings and other images surrounding me. Um, And even Jesus himself, you know, takes this very self sacrificial posture in our churches. Um, And in the churches I grew up with. And it was just really um, confusing and troubling to me to think about how does one be the unique person um, that they feel like God has called them to be, that they feel like they are wired to be, while also completely, do they have to completely lose themselves to be in relationship with other people? Mm. And I think that's a core fear of the fives is that there is something about being in relationship that will take too much of me and will take too much from me.
1: Before I do interviews, a lot of times I'm inspired to go hunting for quotes about the topic. Right. So today I jumped on Goodreads and I was like, okay, I'm going to look up quotes on motherhood. And what really fascinated me was how, there was all this glorif- crazy glorification, and and as I mentioned earlier, this kind of saccharine, kind of romanticized view of motherhood that elevated it. You know, it, it just created this nutty mythology of about womanhood. And I guess I'm not saying that that being a mother isn't a beautiful thing to do with one's life, right? Being a mother. All I'm saying is is that there is a this kind of privileging of of mothers and of their role in the life of a of a child. I, I, it sounds like you agree with me and and that maybe some of this is a little overplayed.
2: I absolutely think it's overplayed. Again, especially if you grew up in American Christianity and even if you didn't, I mean a lot of that stuff, a lot of that hallmark version of motherhood for instance, Mother's Day, right, started as this holiday um, where a woman, a childless woman, actually founded the holiday. You can't make history up, it's great, to honor the contributions of her mother after the Civil War, because what was being honored were these historically masculine contributions. So it ends, it starts um, up being this day where she wants to celebrate women's achievements, celebrate the under celebrated. And it ends up very quickly becoming commodified. And instead of people visiting their mother church, now they're supposed to, you know, contemplate their own children, their own relationship to motherhood, and you know, get mimosas in bed. And there's nothing wrong with that per se. But again, what started as a way of celebrating the under celebrated now does feel like it's overplayed. It does feel like we've over celebrated. The role of mothers to the detriment of other roles that women play, to the point where when I talk to women, I think both moms and non-moms feel like they can't win. I mean, that's the thing. That's the thing about what I call maternal exceptionalism. I it's hurting moms and non-moms. It's hurting traditional mothers and unorthodox mothers um, because it's putting moms that are doing things the traditional way on a pedestal that's really hard to advocate for a full human, gross, weird, gorgeous existence. And for non-moms, right, there's the sense that your life doesn't begin until you become a mom. And therefore, like any experience you have of love or relationship or meaning or fulfillment is just discounted because like, just wait, the best is yet to come. And you're like, I don't know if it will come. And again, Let's not discount all of these beautiful things I'm doing with my life now.
1: Mm-hmm. Man, I love this different take on things. I, I think it's really interesting. And I, and I I want to know more about these scripts. Like, what are they? And it sounds like you maybe even have some of them titled, you know, or, or you know, tell me about some of them.
2: Yeah. Every chapter is a script. Your biological clock is ticking is one. Of them, right? And you're like, wait, why is that a script? Well, one, it's something that we say to women, especially women in their mid to late to early 40s and 30s. And it's meant to imply that whether you like it or not, your body will want children, that there is something in you that is wired to want children. And I often argue that the Christian parallel um, is be fruitful and multiply. Like there is just something about your nature as a human being that wants to do this, that's called to do this, and that will be fulfilling your highest purpose if you do it. But again, the crazy part is there's actually like no scientific evidence that that natural drive exists. Again, an evolutionary yearning, sure. Like it makes sense that our species would want to keep having biological children and keep reproducing. But on an individual level, we end up being so much more mysterious than that. And I think it's the same thing with how we discern our calling in life. Yes, we can look around and see that there is a large swath of people who do find good meaning and uh, important identity in the role of parents. And yet, like, we also need all kinds of kinds. As the Enneagram shows, we need all kinds of kinds to image the face of God to one another on this earth. And so these social scripts, like your biological clock is ticking, like motherhood is the toughest job in the world, or like my favorite slash least favorite, the one I call the mother of all mother scripts. You don't know love until you become a mother. And all of these scripts are venerating mothers, shaming non-mothers, and just completely failing to honor the variance of a human life.
1: Mm. Yeah. You know, it's interesting what you said earlier about evolution, because in evolutionary psychology, we know that that need that we have to perpetuate our line, right, is as powerful in men as it is in women. Uh, I believe that. Men have a deep, if not equivalent need to women to live on, right, through genetically live on through their children, right? I mean, that's how the species has continued to grow and evolve, right? It's like uh, that's an unconscious driver in the presence of both genders. Right. So to say that it's only women, this would be really myopic, you know, and to not really see it for, for things as they really are.
3: Yeah.
2: So
1: what does it mean to be someone other than a mother?
2: I have been defining someone other than a mother as anyone who doesn't believe motherhood is a superior source of meaning, identity and love to all the others. So whether you are doing the work of mothering or not, you simply recognize that we don't need to make a hierarchy of love, that we don't need to play who's doing the toughest job or who has the highest calling, that there is actually great theological evidence. I'm going to like do my nerd alert moment that other love, not mother love was considered the most best and beautiful and generous form of love in Christianity, especially for the early Christians, we have Jesus in his own words saying no greater love exists than that person who would lay their life down for a friend. Uh, And so if we want to make a hierarchy, I would argue that friendship would actually be the umbrella under which like our most holy and sacred relationships play out. And that of course, of course, mother love can fall under that. Of course, romantic love can fall under that. Um, of course, stranger love is a huge part of that. But again, the relationship we have to our own progeny, is just doesn't seem to be a huge concern of the early church. And it's not until much later in human history that the quote focus on the family that we hear of and know of today took root. Mm-hmm. So I really do think that there is something, again, at least in my own tradition, actually radically orthodox about claiming someone other than a mother is the most generous, generative way um, that we can move in this world where other love, not mother love, will be our highest purpose.
1: You know, you're going to piss a lot of people off, right, Aaron? Why? Why? I said mother love could be under the other love umbrella. Okay. Everyone's
2: included. Everyone could come to the party. Just don't tell me. Don't use the S. Don't use the superlatives, right? Like that's where I, that's where I get pissed off is I'm like, one, let's speak for ourselves because anytime someone speaks in generalities to me, this is like my four wing coming out, right? I get really cranky because I want to be an individual snowflake and I want to argue that we all have these really beautiful individual unique experiences worth honoring. Mm. But yeah, I want people to speak in I statements when they talk about their lives and I don't want people to throw shade at other people for being ignorant of what love is simply because you found it in one really meaningful corner of your life.
1: Mm. Yeah, you know my mom. I want to talk about my mom for a second. Yeah,
2: talk about your mom.
1: Yeah, let's go. Um, (laughs) So my mom is still alive. She's 93 years old. She is a strong Enneagram 8. And I'm going to be very honest for a moment. You know, in a really interesting way, but a confusing way because of cultural context, my mom was very untraditional. She was, you know, when you used to see, I only can say is like, someone said to me the other day that my mom was a little bit like Catherine Hepburn when she got really old, you know, like sort of like, oh, oh yeah, like my mom was strong ass woman. And she was, went into publishing in the 1960s when we were kids, little kids, and she kicked ass in the business world. She left us home. We had a nanny growing up. I think in some ways my mom unconsciously outsourced us mm. to a very a person who was very nurturing very present very caring because she really wasn't yeah. but, but it didn't disqualify her from being a mother right it like her yes. not being the quintessential or stereotypical mom she didn't say to herself well, I'm, you know, I don't really have those kinds of like warm, fuzzy sort of mom things going on. Therefore, I can't be a mother. My mom was actually gave us courage, resilience, determination. She, I mean, she was a a force of nature. Uh, I, I know that she struggled, really struggled. And I'm gonna say something else. I think if I really got under the, my mother's hood, mm-hmm that she probably was really conflicted about whether or not she should have been a mother because she felt like she, she was, oh man, she wanted to conquer the world. Mm -hmm. And I don't think she, I think because, you know, she was born in an era where that just wasn't an acceptable option, you know, for a woman. So again, I have interesting feelings about her, but she, Carved her own path. That's for sure. She Mm -hmm. definitely did not follow the norm. Mm -hmm.
2: I love that reflection, (laughs) both for the reminder it is to me that I don't always have to explain or make a defense for why I chose not to mother for a good long time. And now why I unexpectedly find myself mothering. I mean, part of my weird story that we haven't talked about yet is that I was purposely child free for about a decade with my husband. And then we unexpectedly, well, people ask how it was unexpected. We adopted, but we got into fostering. We got trained as foster parents um, simply because we wanted to be available to our community in more creative ways, not realizing that like kids were 95% of the endeavor And um, our very first placement was these beautiful three school-age girls. And very quickly, their parents' rights were terminated. um, And we had to make a decision whether or not we would be what they call a forever home. We discerned that we were more compelled by the yes than the no. But it was a struggle. It has been a struggle to wrap my identity around this mothering role Because I feel like I constantly am not an easy fit for other people. And disentangling what is my own work to do around the limits I have that are like growth edges that are worth looking at fiercely and saying, yeah, I'm going to take responsibility for the fact that like sometimes I peace out and I read in my room while I think the spiritual practice here would be to linger would be to linger at the conversation, linger at the dinner table, linger doing dishes. And that's hard for me, right? So what are the moments where I need to like look deep inside and say, yeah, I think there's a growth edge here. And what are the moments where I'm like, no, that's just other people making me feel like there's something less than about me because I frequently come into my bedroom and read and put up a sign that says, I need to be alone, but I still love you. Mm. Yeah, that's kind of where you need other people in community to help test your truths and reflect back to you. Yeah, that was an asshat moment. And actually that's not yours to wear. And I think that's, that's the work I find myself continually doing now five or six years into this communal project of parenthood. But I love that your mom was a resourcing parent and that is language that's been really helpful to me. So that's the final thing I'll say on this Is that I have realized I'm not a high touch parent, which is part of the reason why I opted out of biological parenting and part of the reason why I loved fostering older kids. It's strange when your kids talk to you from day one, but like I really geek out on that kind of stuff. I've realized that I'm much more happy when I'm like on my computer looking up like times for the tennis rec league or Like, is there a cool sewing machine that I could purchase for you so that you can like keep doing your craft? Because I heard you got really excited about that. And like, that's how I love my children is through research and resourcing. (laughs) And I used to feel like that was an inferior way of loving my children. But my partner, my husband is the hands-on one. He's the youth pastor. He's the gregarious, loud, he's a stereotype in some ways. But also, the one that is is uh, more comfortable with some of those more stereotypically maternal qualities. And so, a lot of my work around rewriting my own story is learning to see what sometimes feel like a lack of capacity as just like a superpower in a different way.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, fives are not typically tactile people. Oh. and they have, well, we think about boundaries, right? We, internal psychological boundaries we we typically talk about the boundary as a guard and you it allows you to let the safe people in and keep the dangerous people out right or the less desirable people out not necessarily dangerous now twos for example would have very low boundaries nines can have very low boundaries fives have the highest boundaries and the thickest boundaries of all the types right and that's why you know we talk all the time about the castle of the mind which of course brings you know into your imagination this picture of a fortress mm-hmm. right and that the that the five tends to be up on the uh, you know on a top of a minaret looking out over the crenellations at everybody you know down below from a, a distance mm-hmm. right and so, for example, when I'm with fives, I'm, I always ask a five if God, I'm very tactile. But when I'm in a group, I meet a five and I'm a hugger. I always go, Can I give you a hug? Because sometimes, yeah. Yeah. Cause sometimes a five will look at me and go, I'd prefer if you didn't.
0: (laughs) And I'm like perfectly cool with that. And that's when you let go. No, no, no. (laughs) Uh, No,
1: no, no. I I I don't. And often, you know, when I'm teaching a workshop and I need to give an illustration of something, and I know there's a five and I've met them already, I'll always say, do you mind if I touch you? You know, like you might have, because I'm giving an illustration and they'll be like, yeah, that's cool. But they just appreciate being asked. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And so, in your situation, you know, you have no shame about the fact that, look, I'm not a particularly tactile person, but I got a husband. I can resource this to somebody else for whom that's really, really natural.
2: Yes. And I can also lean into those growth edges where, yes, this doesn't come naturally to me uh, or easily to me, but. If I'm attuned to you, which is a big word in parenting, right? And a big word in the foster and adopt world. If I'm attuning to you and I realize that you need touch right now, okay, now how can I negotiate that? So I don't lose my sense of integrity, but you also get some of your needs met. And I remember talking to my therapist about this early on in parenting because uh, I had a kiddo that like just had a really squirmy body. And so if we were sitting on the couch watching a movie, like her body would just end up like squirming, like uncomfortably close to mine. And it's just like really grossed me out. And I was like, you're not supposed to be grossed out by children's squirmy bodies. But again, I was like, "Eh, I, I, I know enough now to know that this is not a mortal sin. This is how I'm wired, but what can I do? What strategies can I come up with so that I'm not just totally dismissing that she has a need and I'm an adult and and I know how to meet some needs. And so the therapist recommended, well, what if when she does that, you, you say, can I put a pillow between us so you can lean your head on me? And just having that buffer of a pillow so she wasn't directly on my shoulder felt incredibly freeing. Right. And so I feel like that's the gift of the Enneagram for me. And especially in parenting now, is recognizing it is so helpful to have this knowledge about who I am. And I'm not supposed to use this knowledge as a crutch for like not growing or just being like, sorry, not changing. But like, I can use it to be like, okay, so what is like a tiny micro move that I could make that would still feel good to me? but also meet you and where your squirmy body wants to connect right now.
1: Oh, I love that. Yeah. Because it's so true, right? The Enneagram celebrates not only who you are, but who you could become, right? And it does provide something, you know, it's not perfect, but something of a roadmap, Right, Something that challenges our assumptions and, and, you know, tries to move us in directions where we might have to burn some calories to do things that aren't natural to us.
2: Oh, no, that sounds like energy.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You know, I said earlier that you're going to piss people off. And I love it when we have authors on who I know are going to piss some people off. Right. (laughs) Uh, because it, you know, it represents courage in the in the creative process, and I I always I, I always admire that. I, I would imagine that the people you're going to piss off most are women, and to piss off uh, women who have grown up in religious traditions, you mentioned in Christianity, for example, but I, in Judaism certainly, I, it's, it's translatable. I mean, it's I think it's a, a cultural phenomenon that's across the board. But you're going to run into particularly conservative Christian women who are going to be like, you are wrong. You know what I mean? Like, you, What am
2: I wrong about?
1: Well, I'm going to get to that. But, <laughs> but because they have, perhaps many of them, not all, bought into the cultural belief that motherhood is the highest vocation, uh, all the things we've we've already spoken about. And you're going to be blowing up some paradigms here, right? You're going to, you're going to be pushing back against, you know, deeply held beliefs.
0: Like some of these ideas would scare people.
1: Yes. Yeah. Right. Right. You know, it's going to kind of make the ground a little squishy for some people. And that's, that's a good thing. You know, let's just imagine we had a room full of women who are very resistant to this idea because of spiritual convictions and training, et cetera. Like, what would you say to them? How would you tell them to approach the topic? Oh, that's a good question. I
2: mean, I do want to say, like, I'm sure I'm wrong about something. So we don't, yeah, I'm sure I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so let's just start with some intellectual humility. I think I would just ask questions. I mean, I don't I don't ever want to take away this the way that someone else makes meaning. Like I'm not interested. It's being a mother has been like the greatest love of your life. I don't want to take that away from you. I just want to open up your perspective to realize that women who aren't mothering or aren't mothering in these traditional ways that have been so meaningful to you aren't deficient, defiant, or devilish. That they too are called to. If we're talking about the Abrahamic phase, love God and love neighbor. As yourself. I think that's the highest calling. And there's so many different ways that we can do that. But it doesn't say, you know, make babies, make breakfast. And I don't know what the triple it is. And there's again, nothing wrong if those are the things you are doing and those are the things that are giving your life meaning. But I also, I also have a hunch. I'm 38, and this is a big topic of conversation for my life stage. I have a hunch that we're all gonna realize that callings are a lot more seasonal than we thought they were as we continue to get older and continue to have changing relationships with ourselves and our bodies and the people that we have chosen to make family with. And I'm so curious about conversations with those women when they are much older about, okay, what now? We all made some choices. We all felt a little judged for the choices we made. Um, We all felt a little internal shame and external shame for some of the things we did or didn't do or the way our lives turned out or didn't like turn out or the things we had a choice about and the things we didn't have a choice about. But okay, now that we know that like there's overwhelming research that women are happiest after 85 (laughs) and that friendships are far more good as a protectant against misery in old age than one's family, like now can we have a conversation about like that's not so centered on um, will you mother or will you not, but like how do we want to be old broads together and can we come, can we have some more generous conversations about, you know, our back pain or the the telenovela we're watching? I don't know, right? Like, I'm so curious about how our conversations will evolve. And so I just want a lot of softness and generosity now to say that they will evolve. And let's remember the big umbrella is other love. Mm-hmm. And there are lots of different ways, lots of different ways we can love to our limit.
0: One of the things I was thinking, as you said that Ian was, because I'm sure there's going to be a lot of women who who get a lot of relief from mm-hmm. this idea. In this yes, book. the ones that might be upset are the ones that h- have hung their hat on this ideal, and then all of a sudden you come along and you transcend that ideal. Huh? You're like, wait a minute, <laughs> you, know right. you don't have to do this to be happy or to be, you know, the the ideal or this or that. Now that could leave somebody a red bra, you know.
2: Yeah. Well, it's hard. It's hard. (laughs) Yeah. It makes, it makes you question. It makes you question your life. And like you said, where you've put your worth when other people come along and whether they're on a podcast or not. Right. When they've just simply chosen something differently and you, you look at them and you go, huh, I guess I didn't have to do X, Y, and Z. Yeah. But I'm sure there are plenty of women too. Um, I don't want to infantilize any woman. I'm sure there are plenty of women too that hearing all of this would still do exactly what they did before and really enjoy how their life turned out. And I'm really happy for them. They're just not the main audience for this book.
1: So I like what you said earlier about organizing identity around mm-hmm. your role as a mother, right? I, I think I think that's what my mom did is not organize her identity solely around her being a mother, right? Uh-huh. I know that's true, right? She, her identity was multifaceted, right? I mean, she she had a lot of things feeding that pond, you know, a lot of streams, different streams feeding the pond of identity for, for herself, which was great, you know? A little confusing in the 1960s, I think, probably uh-huh. for her and for us, you know? But there you go. That's how, that's how it played. And I like the idea that it it should not be an expectation that women organize their identity around being mothers and that mothers don't need to organize their identity around it. And then therefore become mm-hmm. imprisoned in an identity that prevents them from living into the highest expression of who they are. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's a hard time to be putting your identity solely or even fully in motherhood. Um, it's just a hard time with the pressures of intensive parenting, with the pressures women are feeling to put more time in at work, more time in at home, more, 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 right? Like they're like this, the five in me just wants to like get a seminar on how everyone can say no more and just how great no is and that no should be our best friend. But I think what you're describing is something I've been calling, and I didn't call it this in the book, but vocational polyamory. <laughs> that. I do think that there's this idea that like, we should love our children exceptionally or to the exclusion of other loves. And I just think no one, no one's asking you to do that. No one needs you to do that. Again, there's a lot of research about how good it is for kids to experience what you describe experiencing growing up in a a whole community of adults. And there's a lot of (laughs) anecdotal evidence too that yeah, sometimes what's best for you does hurt your kid a little bit and that's okay. Like sometimes there's this idea that like, if I have an immaculate day of self-care, it will automatically make my child more happy, healthy and whole. No, like sometimes when I take self-care time away, my kids like roll their eyes at me and then like ice me out for a day, right? So like, I'm not saying that like in this perfect world, when you choose to explore other loves that like everything else just falls into place. But I think there's something really beautiful about children and adults being women own their power, enjoy and explore their body and like relax, relax and experience recreation. And again, for a lot of women to do that, we need help we do need a, a whole host of other adults and like preferably also some some better government policies to make that happen.
1: Mm. So it's interesting as you were speaking, it made me think that, you know, when a woman organizes her identity around motherhood, it actually places a great burden on the children. Yeah, it does. Mm. Can you explore that with me a little bit?
2: Yeah. Um, So it goes back, I think, to this idea of children not being contributors to the family plot, but actually being the thing that needs to be worked or attended to on the family plot. Mm -hmm. So again, just to nerd out, historically, children go from going to work in the early part of the 20th century to after World War II, they become work because now you have all these good, good laws protecting against child labor abuses. But it also creates this (laughs) new leisure time that women are supposedly supposed to have. And now these little people that they are supposedly supposed to entertain. And that's really where you see this shift from women feeling like their job is their children and their children's welfare. And and I just worry that that worldview is not only, like you say, myopic for the woman, but really shrinks a child's view of what our commitment is to the common plot, the common good. Uh, And when we invest all of our resources in our own kiddos and just, again, assume that that's actually the best use of our time because surely our child will be the one to grow up and cure cancer. I think it's a really problematic model for raising kids who get that we're here to take care of one another and not just the people living under our own
1: roof.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. you going to say something, Anthony? Yeah, one of the things I was thinking of, if I'm a mother and I'm drawing all of my identity from being a mother, one of the things, rest assured, the children know that. Uh, it it puts a pressure on the children then right because uh, i i intuitively know somewhere oh it's very important you know mom's role is very important it's important how i how, whatever the word you want to say perform or how i relate to that if it is if it's sort of centric to her core identity i think it I agree with you, is what I'm trying to say is that it's, I think it puts a lot of pressure on the kids.
1: Well, okay, yeah, because the kids are now taking care of mom.
0: Exactly. They're,
1: they're preserving mom's identity. That's right. Yeah. You know, and never challenging it and yeah. never, you know, perhaps even launching into their own journey because, oh, you know, I got to, you know, I got to take care of mom because she sort of centered her whole life around me. And, yeah. you know, you know what I mean? And everybody gets a little bit, you know, locked up. So I we're coming toward the end I'm speaking to Aaron Lane author of the uh, of the new and wonderful book Someone Other Than a Mother flipping the scripts on a woman's purpose and making meaning beyond motherhood and I want to close with uh, this this last question. You know, I have two members of my family that have intentionally chosen not to have children because well as one once told me you know, the world is falling apart. Why would I want to bring a child into a world where, you know, we're all, we're all on the verge of burning up with climate change. We you know there's, there's a whole, you know, the wars and, you know, blah, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Why would I want to do that? Uh, and I'm curious if, you know, in your research, if you, you know, what, I guess, does it mean that when you choose not to have children that you're choosing not to have a family?
2: Absolutely not. I, I think our choice not to have children, not to have biological children, was really out of a commitment to finding kinship with a wider family of living beings. And I think that's an argument that uh, environmentalists have made about the connections that we can cultivate with the land, with animals, but further, right, with our local communities and our neighbors with roommates, with all kinds of improbable kin that aren't the kind that you perhaps grew up seeing in people's Christmas cards. And I think that's a total misconception of the intentionally childless or child-free life that one, it means you're forgoing a family rather than cultivating family with yourself and the other people that and non people that you have chosen to be in relationship with. And two, that it's not a hopeful act. You know, there's a lot of angst about declining birth rates and all of the horrible reasons why many people are doing a scan of their environment and realizing it doesn't feel like a great time financially, environmentally, energetically, mental healthly to bring children into the world. And Again, maybe this is because I'm a lady five, but I'm like, yeah, that's an act of hope. It's an act of faith to say, I'm going to actually take care of who's here. I'm not going to actually let my limits be how love multiplies. And I'm going to trust that I don't need to generate all of the new life on my own, that there is new life happening around me in unexpected places, and I'm going to make it my calling to look for that and befriend life wherever I find it. And it it doesn't need to, doesn't need to come out of my own body or my own womb.
1: Mm. That's a great place to end. Again, everyone, I'm talking with Erin Lane, author of Someone Other Than a Mother, Flipping the Scripts on a Woman's Purpose and Making Meaning Beyond Motherhood. Enneagram five, lady, Enneagram five, Erin <laughs> Lane. Thank you so much for being on Typology. Oh, so fun. Tell everybody where they can find you.
2: You can find me at Hey Aaron Lane on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. I also have a website, AaronSLane.com, where you can sign up for my Good For You newsletter where we celebrate the less shiny bits of a life well-lived.
1: Mm, love it. Well, everybody, uh, I encourage you to go out and get this provocative, wonderful, encouraging, challenging uh, new work by, by Aaron. And Erin, I hope you do agree to come back on and uh, tell us about your experience, you know, after the book comes out. And there's always a story to be told about the unintended consequences of publishing. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. uh, it would be wonderful to have you back.
2: I would love that.
1: Great. And it, my dear Typology audience, remember these words. May you have love. May you have joy. May you have peace. May you have healing. May you have rest. Until next time.